Hello, Matt Hodap here, host and executive producer of Paris of the Plains. Coming up in just a moment, the story of a Syrian refugee family who has resettled here in the Kansas City area. Don't go anywhere. You're not going to want to miss it, I promise. But, but first, just a few things you may not know. Along with doing this show, I'm also the director of the podcast network that it resides on. We're called Fountain City Frequency, and we're a Kansas City-based organization. If you haven't yet checked out all the other shows on our network, I really encourage you to do so. We have Archiver, which delves into the untold and unknown stories of Kansas history. We have No Wrong Answers, a show where teachers, real teachers, talk about the battles in and outside of the classroom that are shaping the next generation. Also, Iconoclast of Things a show by Kansas City native John Evans about people utterly committed to the things they love. If you love this show, see what I did there? Take some time out of your day and check out our other podcasts. If you like them, leave a review, subscribe, tell your friends. It really helps small startup podcasts like ours. Now, on today's show... We're going to air the first episode of our new Iconoclast of Things podcast about a Syrian refugee family that positively, positively changed a neighborhood here in the Kansas City area. Enjoy. You're listening to the Iconoclast of Things podcast. This is episode number one, and I'm your host. My name is John. Every episode of Iconoclast of Things is going to start with a thing. For my first episode, I figured it was best to take you back to the beginning. Our first thing is Blue Dawn Manor, the neighborhood I grew up in. I used to play baseball in the Healy's backyard. It was sort of the infield, which made my backyard dead center, and it made the Smith's Pool, left field, and the water spectacular. I knew all the neighbors, the Johnsons, the Belfontes, the Smalls, the Hutchisons, the Hupps, Cerniches, the Saladinos, the other Saladinos, and the Domshes. We had dirt-clawed fights, and I split my head open playing hide-and-seek the night Thriller debuted on MTV. In the summer, my friends and I would meet up at this power pole under the Johnson's mulberry trees. Then I'd wrap my purple hands around the grips of my black and gold BMX, and I'd race down this hill to a ramp we built at the bottom on the playground at this little school where I'm standing right now. Today, two Syrian brothers go to school here. Their names are Faraz and Amar, Ahawaja, and the story of how these two boys and their family got here and brought together a neighborhood of people not far from this spot in the middle of Independence, Missouri, is episode number one of Iconoclast of Things. It's titled Houses of Concrete and Houses of Wood. He lived in the countryside outside Damascus, an area called the Ghuta. So they actually cultivate their land, they plant all kind of vegetables, fruits, and even grain, and this is how they make their living. That first voice you heard is Ibrahim Ahawaja. He's Faraz and Amar's dad. 
The second voice is Sam. He's our translator, and he's an important part to the story. Ibrahim and his family were living in Huta while the Syrian war was going on in big cities like Damascus and Aleppo. Then one day the war came to their home. When the fighting escalate and they start all kind of rocket and bomb and uh, and the kids was, was very scary. Um, there was some civilian casualty they start. One day, two of the warring factions were fighting in Huta. So Ibrahim's family, his wife Anas, and their three sons, Faras, Amar, and Hamse, had to get out of the house. Ibrahim was caught in the crossfire, and so was their home. He received a couple of shots on his right arm and left arm and right on the side of his tummy. And as the shot came into him, it kind of exploded, so there was blood all around. And at one point, there even their house was uh, destroyed. And uh, there was no more uh, medical attention, like clinic or hospital, no schools, no means to make a living uh, because no jobs, no all businesses collapsed. So it was time to leave. Homeless, the family of five sort of couch surfed for a while. But there's no more school for the boys, there's no health care, there's nothing but this giant, intractable civil war. So Ibrahim does what any good father would do. He talks to his mom. He spoke to his mom first and his wife. What was that conversation like with his mother? He, he basically brought the fact before his mother that's lack of he doesn't have a house anymore he's you know moving from one place to another is very costly and it's no future because there's no job no security no medical attention for the kids and he need to take care of his family so his mom was she was okay with that it wasn't easy, but... And, uh, you know, she gave him her blessing and prayed for him. For most of us, this would be the resolution of the ordeal. We'd pack up what we had, leave, go someplace else to live, and make a new life. But for Ibrahim and his family, it's just the beginning. He and Anas are both from big families. There's something like 12 siblings between them. Leaving his family behind is a big deal. This all happened in 2013. It'll be years before Ibrahim, Anas, and the boys all sleep in the same house together again. The path to that house will take them in a tiny van in the desert, through refugee camps, an urban hideout, and finally, our Midwestern exurbs. But first, they have to get through a military checkpoint just a few miles from the rubble of their house. They, as they left for family when they first left, so they were trying to make their way out of the Ruta, the countryside. Uh, there was one town called Razlania, and there's security checks, uh, army or security, or sometimes combined. The first one, they made it through, 
The second one day, as they enter the city, the town, you have to have uh, some kind of paperwork credential that show that you are one of the inhabitants of those cities because they don't want somebody stranger walking in. Uh, and so they did not have it because they're not from there, but that was like a passage. And so they they refused, they wouldn't let them in, the, the head, the command of that particular security check. But at one point, as they were about to leave, there was one of the soldiers who sympathized with them, and he asked them, did he just refuse for you to come? and say yes. I said, well, okay, just go and try to manage, you know, on those uh, uh, little narrow streets. So a soldier they don't know disobeys orders and surreptitiously lets them through the checkpoint. Ibrahim has already set up passage from Guzlania to Jordan which means they're about to enter this burgeoning and shady new economy in the Middle East. Sam calls this guy a guide. The rest of the world calls it the people smuggling business. In June 2016, an Eritrean smuggler confessed to authorities that when his refugee clients couldn't afford to pay their fee, they were sold off to organ traffickers. These groups, kill the refugees, and harvest their organs to sell on the black market. So Ibrahim's about to entrust his entire family to an underground economy. The five of them are crammed into this van, and they're trucking through the Syrian desert. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, they're not really, I mean, although they're traveling, but there's uh, like a guide. Uh, he's basically supervising this whole thing. He knows all the routes, and he's not doing it for free. I mean, he's taking 15,000 Syrian pounds per each family. So it was taking $300 from each family. That's a lot of money. <laughs> he basically did that for all of the countryside, <laughs> him and people like him. Yeah, yeah. So he's just entrusted his wife, three sons, and a big chunk of money to some guy he's never met to get him out of Syria. And at this point, the good news is that guy didn't alter the deal. He does his job because, well, hey, who doesn't want to be liked? Uh, when they were fined by the Jordanian uh, army, they received them and they end up in the Zaatari refugee camp. They, uh, then uh, the Jordanian official, they took all form of identity that proved their identity from uh, their ID card to their passport. Even in Syria, we have something called uh, a book for the family where they it's, it's a small book where they put the picture of the father the mother and the kids they even took that so they left with no id the zatari refugee camp is jordan's fourth largest city this place with no real paved roads and only a few semi-permanent structures is the houston texas of jordan it's over 2,000 square miles with 80,000 inhabitants from above the camp looks like Midwestern farmland seen from a commercial airplane. There's these clearly delineated squares interlocking like a big brown quilt. At ground level, you see trailers and some semi-permanent looking buildings. But mostly, it's corrugated aluminum and, maybe most troubling to Ibrahim, these big polyester cotton blend tents with UNHCR screen printed in big blue letters across the peak. The UNHCR requires that these tents that people live in pass something called CPAI 84 requirements for flame retardants. 
But to Ibrahim, this whole gig seems sketchy. What what happened in Zadari that you knew you had to leave? منشان هيك يعني إنه خفت وكان يعني الدنيا جاي على صيف الشمس بجوز تساوي شيء تحرق بجوز كذا أو ولد يروح يشغل الداحة أو شيء ما بتعرف يعني يصير واحد يبعد عن الشر ويغني له مشان هيك أنا يعني قررت إني أطلع من المخيم. The condition of those tents that they put them in is very uh, highly flammable. And at the, you remember that they just arrived in the summertime, and there was an incident when those tents went on fire. And if that happened, the air will just destroy everybody in them. It will basically kill them. So he doesn't want to wait for his own demise, you know, and decide not to take that chances and just flee. So here they are, five of them smuggled out of Syria, sitting in the camp designated for refugees with no ID, no money, one change of clothes, and he sees firsthand that these polycotton bags are actually just a death trap waiting to happen. Now we should remember that Ibrahim is the kind of guy who spends a lot of time preoccupied with the safety of the structure he puts his family in. He comes back to this in our interview over and over again. So Ibrahim, Anas, and the boys flee Zadari. They find a sympathetic family that's willing to take them in, and they basically hide out in urban Jordan for three years and four months. They live with these three other families divided up among two houses that are about 500 square feet apiece. Then, finally, the word comes that the UNHCR Refugee Resettlement Program has found them a home in the U.S., in my hometown of Independence, Missouri. They did not really choose the city. The city was chosen for, you know, was chosen for them. So, Allah, we are not here. 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 Yeah, I mean, from what they see, you know, and they've been told, it's, it's about a lot of mafia activities and gangs and violence. <laughs> are you watching The Sopranos? After all this, the soldiers, the smugglers, the tent fires, and over three years of hiding out, Ibrahim gets to America. Now, we've read a lot about these warm welcomes that refugees receive in America, and it's true. A lot of them are greeted at the airport with groups of people cheering them and welcoming them with food and signs and music. But that didn't happen for Ibrahim and his family. Why? Well, good old-fashioned travel headaches. He was supposed to arrive at 12 midnight. He arrived 12 hours earlier than that. It was midday, noon. So there was nobody there uh, to receive him. And he finally, because he, he doesn't really speak English, so he finally he contacted a police officer and he was kind of scared. Uh, but he, he did not really show that before his wife and his kids. For Ibrahim, the mythology of the American gangster and this preoccupation with the safety of his shelter make for a pretty restless first night in the greatest nation on earth. When he first came to the house, you know, the way houses are built in Syria, they're built by stone and cement, and it's very much solid. 
So when he walk into the sweaty house and the zigzag and uh, kind of fragile to him at least, and then uh, he couldn't really sleep that night. He was scared that uh, a gang might come in, and, you know. So he had hardly any sleep. The next morning, Ibrahim walks around his new neighborhood, and he realizes uh, his neighbor, where uh, there was a lot of elderly women, uh, an elderly crowd with no young men or teenagers, and so he felt like at ease after that, you know. Yeah, so he finally was able to sleep. <laughs> They go to daycare, and that happens apparently all day long. Really? Yeah, they can ignore 40 or 50 other dogs. It's not a, not, he thinks they're playing. Yeah. Um, I, I say that uh, we were introduced to the Ahawajas because of our dogs. And um, our yards corner up in the back. Uh, and so um, right by the telephone pole, is where the, the kids would would be reaching through the fence to pet the dogs. And um, and that's where um, we met uh, Ibrahim and Anas, uh, his wife, and the kids. Uh, and we would frequently, in the beginning, um, just meet at the pole, uh, under the, under the uh, power pole. And with the aid of Google Translator, uh, we got to know each other. Uh, um, and and most of our time was really spent uh, sharing meals together. Um, I, I could never do one thing for this family without them immediately feeling the need to pour something else back out. Jeff Rogers is from Independence, too. He grew up here, moved away for a little bit, and he moved back. He and his wife work out of their home behind Ibrahim's place. He's got a little garden to tend to and two dogs, a Jack Russell named George and a golden retriever named Jack. I think for me, uh, the the plight of the refugee in general has always been um, something that I've been very empathetic to. Um, But it was always just a a term. You know, it was a story that maybe uh, you heard on NPR uh, or uh, you watched on on the evening news. Um, But when that story became an actual family, when it became um, a neighbor, uh, and and it became a friend, mm-hmm. uh, it took on a whole new depth. Jeff's is one of those garage-centric neighborhoods that we developed after World War II. The little branch houses are set close together, so you're never more than 60 feet from your neighbor. But in 2016, that doesn't mean you really know anyone. Take Jeff's backyard neighbor, Scott. Scott's a big, muscled guy. He works at the local hospital, and he and his wife live next door to Ibrahim. Since the Ahawajas moved in, Scott's taken Ibrahim sort of under his wing. They've gone fishing. Bob, who's Scott's dad, takes Ibrahim to his ESL classes, and he brought him a coat. The day I'm there for the interview, Scott's concerned that when Ibrahim starts his construction job the next day, he won't have warm enough clothes. So at the poll, Scott and Jeff talk about this. Now, Scott voted for Trump. Jeff voted for Clinton. But before Ibrahim's family moved in, none of these guys ever really knew each other. They probably didn't even know or care who voted for who. Scott and Teresa, who live right behind me, I knew them by name, and we would wave at each other. They also have two dogs. But 
really, that's all I knew. I knew their dogs' names, and I, I knew Scott and Teresa. And um, I now know my backyard neighbors. Um, I know where they work. I know, you know, what they do for fun. I we we spend time together. We eat together. We uh, this family has brought our neighborhood together. So this is the thing. After their ordeal, after years of waiting, Ibrahim and Nas and their four boys come to America to this little zigzaggy wooden house and bring this neighborhood of locals closer together. All we hear, all we've been told is that immigrants are here doing us harm. They're going to drive us apart. And yeah, if you believe that reality TV version of America, that's where we're headed. But if you pay attention to the America we actually live in, you see that these foreigners, foreigners uh, from a strange land um, are who has, have made us, you know, uh, come to understand each other more. For Jeff and Scott and Ibrahim and Anas and their boys, it was Muslim refugees who made this neighborhood what it was like to grow up here 30 years ago. They made it the place Jeff grew up in. They made it the place I grew up in. And what's getting normalized here in this little neighborhood is just a quiet little life of being neighbors. Um, so it, it now feels a, a little more like when I was a kid. You knew all the kids on, you know, three, four, five streets away. You know, you, you ran through their yards, you rode your bike uh, on, on streets and, and you know, uh, you rode the same bus. But it, it, it's kind of fun to, to know other people, to know their stories too. Uh, because it doesn't always just center around um, the fact that this is a family that, um, who were refugees. Now they're just a family in the neighborhood. In America, our translator goes by the name of Sam. His Syrian name is Yasser. I'm going to continue to call him Sam because that's how he introduced himself. Sam grew up in Damascus. He's been in the U.S. for over 30 years. Before everyone arrived to the interview, Sam, wearing this U.S. Navy baseball cap and this big, multi-layered parka, told me the history of Syria and Damascus. He says it was an oasis of tolerance in a desert of intolerance. Now, typically translators are just sort of there, translating. But Sam's about to become vital to understanding how Syrians feel about this life they have in America. I ask Ibrahim what he misses most about home. If you ask a Kansas Cityan what they miss about home, they're probably going to tell you the barbecue or the Royals or the Chiefs. If you ask a boy from Independence, he's going to tell you it's Dixon's Chili. Uh, he, he missed a good old day when they used to meet at least once a, a week, the whole family. The mother and his mother and sisters and their This is the hardest part for you, isn't it? Oh, I still have family myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is where he grew up. This is his childhood. So he missed all of that. Uh, oh, I have to say this, and I think I probably sp speak to uh, Syria is like a mother. 
America is like a wife. You love your mother, you can never, no matter what happened, you still love your mother. And you have to be faithful to your wife. Surya Lana Mitlimna Amrika Mitl Zoji Nankum Mukhalsin, but Mafina Man Habibna Sahi Sah. As I'm producing this podcast episode, Germany is executing an international manhunt for a Tunisian man who drove a truck into a crowded Christmas market killing a dozen people and injuring 50 more. Donald Trump, our new president, standing at the front door of his Mar-a-Lago mansion made of concrete and steel, was asked if this means he's still calling to ban Muslims from entering the US. His response, on the fourth day of Christmas, you've known my plans all along. Last night, um, as uh, we were putting up the, the kind of the finishing touches of Christmas in our house, uh, I was in the basement uh, getting ready to bring some things up, and I, I heard the, our kitchen door that goes to our backyard open up, and um, their their four year old was standing at the top of the stairs, <laughs> saying hi, and <laughs> um, and he's uh, seeing all the lights in the house, all, all the Christmas lights were on, and. And I could just hear him saying, wow, 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 over and over again. And then he takes off. And I, I know what he's doing. He's going to tell his brothers what he's just seen. And so soon they're all over here. And uh, and Ibrahim and, um, and Anas joined us. And so we, we had just a nice evening of, of sharing together as we were still putting up Christmas. And they got to, you know, help finish putting putting things up. And, and soon we're you know, we're playing the piano, we're singing, we're having what a friend of mine uh, described as some Norman Rockwell moment. So very similar to what he says he misses most. Exactly, and we do. We call each other family. Um, I, I, he will, He's kind and calls me his big brother. It's probably a little more true that I could almost be his father. Yes, Jeff, uh, brother big. <laughs> so I ask Ibrahim, what if the old him... The Ibrahim he was before he was shot and his home was destroyed, the one who hung out with his family every week before they were scattered across the earth. If that old him could talk to this Ibrahim, the one who lives in this neighborhood in independence with his American family, what would the old him say? The old him will tell him, come back. The the new him right now, he basically has an eye-opener experience uh, to, to, to the American people, put it that way, to the American experience. Never mind the politics, the, the gangster movie, but I'm talking about the real people and real experience. There's a lot of good people. There's opportunity for kids to go to school, for him to find job. Uh, and uh, But if Syria were to go back to the old way and even better, he will be accommodating going back to Syria. He, he still loves his mother, I guess. Yeah. 
1787, in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, John Adams wrote, In short, my dear friend, you and I have been indefatigable laborers through our whole lives for a cause which will be thrown away in the next generation upon the vanity and foppery of persons of whom we do not know the names, perhaps. Essayist Michael Ventura calls this an artist's courage more than a leader's, to struggle for a nation or a neighborhood or a life which you believe is already lost. But you struggle because of the grace and humanity of the place you imagine, maybe hopelessly, but all because you've imagined something beautiful. To me, this is an iconoclast of things. This is Ibrahim and Anas, this is Sam, and this is Jeff and Scott. The beauty of the family they imagine for one another, the grace of the space they want to live in, the one we all want to live in, is worth the struggle and maybe the risk of just being a family to one another. And so this is what I want to bring you in this podcast. Stories of people not just committed to gain, but so committed to the beauty of the thing they imagine that they're doing whatever they can to build it. Now, they're not all going to be stories about life and death struggles. Some are going to be about guitars. Some are going to be about coffee. Some are going to be about dogs. But I'm going to continue to try to bring you stories about people at the margins in the communities around us. Because I think that as humans, biologically, socially, and ethically, our best quality is our diversity. Because I think that here at the end of 2016, the year we lost so many, that David and Freddie were right when they said that love's such an old-fashioned word. And love dares you to care for the people on the edge of the night. And love dares you to change our way of caring about ourselves. I'd like to thank Dr. Sophia Khan at KC for Refugees for helping coordinate this story. You're going to meet her in a future episode. I also want to thank Jeff, Scott, Sam, and Ibrahim for sharing their stories with me. Visit iconoclastofthings.com to see photos from this episode and to learn about how you can help make future episodes possible. Now, this podcast is independently produced, and your support means I can capture stories wherever they're happening without censorship or the influence of anyone or anything but the story. I also have a page at patreon.com slash iconoclastofthings where you can make a recurring pledge of support. These contributions, large or small, really do help and really do go a long way. Find me on Twitter at IOTPod or on Facebook.com slash IOTPod. Until next time, take care. I'm John Evans, and this is Iconoclast of Things.